welcome to Cinema Spectator, a show where an expert and a casual movie fan watch movies in the cinematic canon. Today's film is Zodiac, directed by David Fincher, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. My name is Cameron Tuttle, and I'm joined with Isaac Ransom. Isaac, how are you doing? <sighs> right? That was, stolen, that was stolen for the Batman movie, right? The, the whole heavy breathing on the phone thing. I, don't, I have no idea how that's going to translate, but I try to I don't to know. I didn't, put, I didn't watch <laughs> the Batman movie. <laughs> I try to push as much air out for this for this episode to to be in theme with the movie. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm good, Cameron. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. I um, I you know I've been kind of relaxing each. I I guess I'll just jump into what I've been watching. So I am a lover of Breaking Bad, as mm. you know. Um, yes. and I haven't rewatched it in quite some time. I think it was maybe college last time or, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a long time ago, but, um, I threw it back on as kind of just something to have in the background and I've been hooked. I've been enraptured in, <laughs> in rewatching Breaking Bad. So, um, it has been uh, like a lot of fun, actually. It's, it's weird. I forget how much, especially season one, season one is such a comedy. It's crazy. I never even realized. Um, cause I think when you're, you know, when you're watching it the first time, you don't, you don't get that element to it, but there, it, but it is so comedic and the way that it's shot and edited, there are certain things where you're like, wow, this is like straight out of a sitcom, like legit. Um, it's pretty hilarious. Um, so yeah, I've been rewatching that and I, I hope at some point you end up watching it, Isaac, cause, um, it is just such a wonderful show. Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll have to do like the first season or something just cause I'm, I'm so curious about the, the show just because of how we've distanced ourselves from it and people continue to talk about it, right? There are always those TV shows that people are fairly hyped about, and then as we get further away, they're forgotten. Um, revisiting TV is always kind of interesting, right? I, I've actually been um, watching some modern shows, but I kind of get the feeling that a lot of modern stuff on the streaming services, on the streaming services are like, very, it's like very filler. Um, mm. Like it just, I don't know, there's been a huge kind of conversation around She-Hulk um, which I actually think the concept of She-Hulk seems really fun. I've always liked kind of the 2000s era of like case of the week sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I just I just think that's a great setup for a TV show. Um, but I've, I've heard kind of mixed things about She-Hulk being sort of disappointing with the formula that could have been really easy to have a lot of fun with. Um Honestly, I I don't know very much about the new Game of Thrones show, but I've heard that it's kind of mixed in in comparison to the original. Um, But the only modern show that I've been... And I would say also, like, Obi-Wan, I watched that. That was probably the last show that, like... Of, like, the modern era that I got through, and I was just regretful the entire time. (laughs) Um, But I started watching uh, Amazon's Rings of Power. Um, I have not watched the third episode yet, Really interesting viewing experience because I tried to separate myself from any of the conversation around this TV show. And I think Rings of Power, um, it's, I don't know, like you have sort of the 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 stain that the Hobbit trilogy left on the Lord of the Rings 
mm. uh, cinematic experience, right? Yeah. And you also have just the fantastic original trilogy that if you haven't seen uh, and you have any ounce of interest in fantasy, like they're, they're legendary movies. And so I went into um, Rings of Power kind of like, I, I don't know, I was like kind of hesitantly optimistic. I'm not entirely sure why, uh, but I was like, I kind of, I, I was like, you know, they spent a billion dollars on this show, right? <laughs> I was like, how how bad can it be for a billion dollars? And I have to say, watching the beginning and getting into the show, like, I was pretty enamored by it at first. Like, it is really um, fantastic. That's the one thing I hear about the show's visuals, and that's what I'm referring to when I say fantastic, is that uh, not not saying that over, the overall package is fantastic, which we'll get into, but just visually, I had the sound system up a little too loud, and the opening moments um, are very classically scored. The visual effects are pretty jaw-dropping um there's like this moment where they're talking about where the elves came from like they they like started on this faraway place that's the west that you're know you know about and you learn about why they're pushed into middle earth and the result of that and there's like this there's this insane fight scene that if your sound system is turned up like it's just it's like overwhelming and i was like whoa this is like this is this is really um, not like anything I've seen on TV. Um, and I know that a lot of people are like, oh, like, you know, Game of Thrones have those epic fights. Like, I'm like, no, like, this is like um, the beginning of the fellowship. Here is where it, it starts to kind of have issues for me. The whole first episode is the first six minutes of the fellowship where they spend way too much time explaining where the state of the world is and mm -hmm. showing you a bunch of characters that you're supposed to, um, you know, follow during the show. And where the first episode really begins to stumble is that it takes too long with the monologue of the state of the world. It introduces a bunch of characters that they just assume you're going to enjoy, but there's really no... Um, there's really no, nothing that kind of makes you in love with any of the characters. And it also does this irritating thing where I just hate Cameron. I just hate prequels, dude. I have no <laughs> idea what it is. Like who wants another prequel? I actually have no idea who is demanding prequels because they recast Elrond and Galadriel, which I think are honest, honestly like pretty good um, castings and they do a good job with what they have. But it's just so like, like there there's a scene in the first two episodes where like Galadriel's like about to drown. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I've never been more bored than this moment, uh, this dramatic <laughs> moment of her about to drown because it's like she's not going to. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Like it's yeah, like the, the tension does. I mean, th this is why the the problem of uh, prequels, right, and and the way that you get around it is doing something like like Game of Thrones is doing now with uh with you know how, what is it House of Dragons or whatever sure. I, I don't even remember um where it's it's not connected necessarily to the 
um, to, you know, the characters aren't connected. And in in theory, you know, obviously this has a couple of characters that that are connected, but they could obviously work around that in in the way that, you know, the tense the tense scenes aren't the ones that that are going to be, you know, the characters that you obviously know are going to survive or whatever. You know, it's like it it just seems it seems like there could be a, a solution to this. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's just it's frustrating because what I was really hoping or hoping for the show is to meet new characters in the in a moment of their lives that's disconnected from everything we know in Lord of the Rings. And then you can yeah. kind of begin to factor in uh these other characters, but right away it starts with okay, our lead uh hero is Galadriel and she's friends with Elrond and there's this uh you know, spooky old wizard. I wonder who he could be, you know, and uh, they're on the search for Sauron. I'm like, could you guys not have th- like, let, let's see some new characters. And so they do show some new characters, but um, even they feel a little bit like just like cookie, like they have like Hobbit-esque characters um, mm-hmm. and these young childish Hobbits running around this village and they're very sheltered and they're like, I want to go see adventure. I'm like, okay. You know, like I'm just, I, I don't know. I didn't know what to feel. What I wanted was kind of more of a Mandalorian experience where, you know, you're stuck with a ranger and he kind of journeys and uncovers a lot of different things or it, honestly just stick to like one character. And I've heard that the third episode just introduces more and more and more characters and, um, I don't know if the dialogue and the drama isn't dripping from the minimal screen time that these, this massive cast has, then it's just going to kind of fall flat. Um, but I will give it credit. There is one interaction that I think is well handled and it's something that I didn't, um, I, 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 my favorite arc in the show is like Elrond is kind of like this young up and coming entrepreneurial elf where he's obviously going to be a leader and he's very proud of that. Right. And so he's been tasked on this assignment to go uh, like help build a tower or something in the first episode. In the second episode, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my old friend who's a dwarf. And like the first amount of actual drama happens where his dwarf, his dwarf friend uh, basically greets him and then says like, uh, you're not my friend. I'm banishing you from my kingdom, you know? And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, you've missed my whole life. You elves are, you live forever, but it's been 30 years and I haven't seen you and I have kids and I have a family. Where have you been basically? And it's actually like, I think the two characters acting and their interaction, um, is the most compelling part of the show so far. Um, so I don't think it's all bad. You know, I, I do think it's a lot of fun to watch. I mean, who doesn't have Amazon prime first of all. So if you're, if you're kind of looking to watch something, but I'm kind of sad to report that besides the spectacle and a few um, interesting character moments, a lot of it just feels kind of trite and mm. sort of tiresome, which is not the way I want to feel when I'm starting a new show. Right, right. Yeah, no, from what I heard was it it looks great um, and there's, you know, interesting things that, that could be set up for later, but so far it's... It's kind of been um, dull and not very well written, um, you know, in in general. So, 
pretty unfortunate. Um, obviously, you know, things can things can change, um, but I guess we'll see. I mean, you know, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> it, it's only the the third episode. I mean, for me, I I say that. However, um, I kind of have a really high bar for uh, for pilots. Um, you know, it it's funny. It's one of my things that I. I think I learned during, um, I took like a screenwriting class in high school. Um, and a lot of that class was dissecting pilot episodes, um, and dissecting their sort of, um, cause I think the thought was pilots are there to jump in, um, give you all of the details about the characters and, and hook you with something that wants you to keep, you know, keep going back. Um, and so for me, I'm, I have like a really high standard of like, if I'm not hooked by the first episode, I'm quitting, you know, I'm not going to watch the, the rest of the show, which I feel like is, um, not a lot of other people has attitudes. Like they're like, oh yeah, you know, the first season sucks, but, um, but just wait it out. You know, (laughs) I'm like, no, (laughs) no, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's like, I don't know. I have a, I have a. I have a standard for these things. I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to watch like eight hours of a show, um, and not be invested in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this is such a problem for me with TV that Cameron. In most cases, I prefer to start on season two. Like in really? most situations, like I'm like That's I don't so even want. I don't even want to watch the first season. It's just where they're figuring out what to do. Especially with like much more casual TV shows, I will pretty much just. I mean, like the first season of, and I know this is like sacrilegious and of course I usually circle back, but like the first time I watched the office, I think I just started in season two. I was like, I just, well, season season two is better than season one, but season one is still funny. It's, it's got some gems. Yeah. But the, like any show like that, you know, arrested development. um, Oh, but season one of arrested development is perfect. It's so good. (laughs) Yeah, I just I don't know. Like it's it's those those early seasons are they I've never found a show where it hits the stride right away. Yeah. Um yeah. and that was probably my initial grab with the first season of Game of Thrones is that I knew Ned Stark only has one season, right? And I was like, I gotta see Sean Bean, you know? <laughs> like, like I was like, I just gotta see him. And the first episode, you know, it doesn't disappoint, right? It does, it does, it's a lot of fun uh, front to back. Well, maybe fun isn't the right word. It's a lot of drama that hooks you in pretty quick. Yeah. So, no, yeah, 100%. I agree. Those opening moments, and this is what I like about film and movies, and as we're gonna get into, is that they don't, they have you for such a short time, they can't linger. Uh, yeah. And it's really impressive when a film does have the time to linger intentionally uh, and mm. effectively. Wow, what a segue. <laughs> as well. So this is Cinema Spectator Review Movies. We put out a review every week on Tuesday. If you like the show, you can support us at patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. Throw a couple dollars our way. Get some benefits like writing questions on the show. If you're a Patreon, remember to DM us. That's the reason we don't read questions on the show. We're not trying to scam you. It's just that <laughs> nobody D- DMs us. And uh, we pretty much know all our patrons personally. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to blame them because, you know, what are they going to do? Take their subscription away? I, you know, most of them, I can call them. So uh, that that's the other <laughs> thing. If, if, if you become that's a, uh, this, this is a random thing. If you're, if you become a patron and uh, we don't know you, 
um, you probably can can pull your power outside of Darren, who's our executive producer, who holds all the power and actually doesn't know uh, how to control it. Uh, he's basically lost lost control of the subject. So Darren, come on, lay down lay down the gavel. But yeah, you could you could support us there to support um, to help the show continue. Uh, it it does encourage us to to stay on time uh, weekly or or close to the time. But if you don't have a few dollars, it's all good. You can give us a rating, share the show, all that stuff helps the show grow guys we appreciate you listening to this podcast we are a um smaller production but it's it's honestly for a lo- the love of the craft and hanging out with cameron and uh if you listen to the show and you don't have you know any money either like we'd love to hear from you uh what you enjoy about it so you can always um dm us on social media it's all under ecfs productions uh we appreciate it cameron we're doing david fincher the last few episodes have been that um, this is our fourth movie from Fincher and yeah, I think so. It's Zodiac, which I have been really excited to watch. Cameron, give us some context. What's up with this movie? Yeah. So Zodiac, um, kind of a classic tale, although, um, I think for our generation, like m- mine and yours, uh, it wasn't quite as, it, you know, in the news or told as much, um, you know, the, the Zodiac killer is pretty much one of the most famous serial killers, I, I would say, ever um, and has kind of this ominous uh, reputation, obviously, for being unsolved. Uh, and this is, you know, something that's still kind of being grappled with today. Um, and I think I think for me, Growing up in the Bay Area, growing up in sort of where some of these places are, um, it was always an interesting tale to have kind of in the background. You know, the Zodiac Killer is like it's almost like a like a like a fairy tale or something. You know, there's something kind of distinctly um, Northern California about it, which I always loved. Um but uh, this tells the story um, of Robert Graysmith, who wrote a book about the Zodiac Killer, sort of tracking his time um, along with, uh, you know, he, he was a cartoonist at, at the Chronicle um, and was a real person, by the way. Um, most of these, the, you know, these characters are based on real people. And I'll get into one that I think is kind of funny. I, I, I wish Juza would tell it, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. Maybe we'll get him to explain if I mess something up later. But um, there's, uh, you know, it follows the story of, of Robert Graysmith, who um, ends up writing a book about it um, and who, you know, kind of through a series of interactions with other people at the Chronicle um, and his own sort of obsessiveness uh, sort of follows this rabbit trail down uh, to, to what he believes is, uh, you know, the answer to this mystery. Though, um, you know, as the film is, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. It, it's ambiguous as to whether or not um, his solution is the solution. So, um, you know, there's there's something to it because it's a an uns, it's still an unsolved case. There's something to the sort of mysteriousness about it. I I really love this in comparison to Memories of Murder. I think it's like it could be like an amazing double feature, honestly, because in some ways they they tackle a lot of uh, the same themes, very similar topics, and I think they're handled very differently, um, but are sort of, um, 
you know, the, the futility of, of the process is kind of explored in, in both of those movies. And I, I just think they're really excellent foils to each other. Um, one, especially because Memories of Murder is on sort of the detective side, um, whereas this is on sort of the journalistic um, re reporter side of things. So it really, uh, you know, feels very... Um, not not opposite necessarily, but it, it it definitely has a um different angle to memories of murder in some ways. Um so you know, this is an expansive movie. It follows the entire span of the Zodiac killings from 1968 to um, you know, well into almost present day. And it it pretty thoroughly covers most things you know it really it doesn't it doesn't hold back necessarily you know it doesn't try to focus on in on one plot line or another um it, it really sort of goes deep into uh the the myth and sort of the legend of the zodiac um as well as sort of the people who are uh you know responsible for for certain you know cultural decisions you know that we still sort of are are living with um about the story and you know what another thing that i think is kind of interesting and a little wrinkle before we get into sort of the the full breakdown of it um is fincher you know he's born in colorado but um he actually grows up in um in marin county um, so it's just north of where I am. It's, you know, it, it, 45 minutes from San Francisco, 30 minutes from San Francisco. Um, and he, you know, he's born in 1960. So he's growing up as sort of all of this is happening. And so I think in one, in, in some, you know, in a way, this is a very personal story to him because I think he's, he's sort of seeing it from the you know, there's a there's a character who's sort of the son of Robert Gray Smith very early on in the movie. And I, I imagine that's sort of a Fincher sort of uh, plug in for for his own childhood. So, um, you know, that's just a very interesting sort of wrinkle in that in that side of things, as much as it is a faithful story. And in, in this, you know, in, in that way, it's a uh, it's also a personal one for for Fincher. So, mm. yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I, I have to ask right off the bat, Cameron, as we're both locals to the area, how much of this movie is actually shot in Northern California? Um. So a a lot of it is shot in Northern California. Obviously, you know, Lake Berryessa and you know all those things. Yeah. There, th there are um, certain instances especially in sort of the early past uh, scenes where obviously shooting on a street in San Francisco, it's not going to look anywhere near, um, you know, now that it did in the 60s or it's not going to look close enough. I mean, of right, course, right. It, it's, you know, it, it changes and evolves and grows. And also, I think there was a there was a certain um, some some neighborhoods didn't really want to, you know, be labeled as the. <laughs> You know, sure. The, you know, it's like it's kind of sensitive for for people who who live there. So, um, there there are some shots that are uh, shot on 
sound stages and you know whatever else but but they do they do sh- shoot a lot in in San Francisco in um you know uh in Vallejo in you know places around the bay area so it's it's a lot that is shot on location and remember you know this is 2007 so VFX yeah they're sort of s- starting to get into the mainstream and starting to to be you know a lot more um look a lot more reasonable but at the same time it's not you know it's not like nowadays where everything's on a green screen or whatever else so you know it is it is uh still made you know a, a lot on location so yeah i just i know sh- uh filming in san francisco is insanely hard to do um, yeah. yeah for for a movie i know that it's just it's difficult there are like the um you know there are like popular cities to film in um, that are like good replacements for New York or, uh, I, but there, it, or San Francisco. Like, I, I can't remember, um, where Toronto. You, yeah. Yeah. Toronto. And, um, there's another one. where did they shoot the dark Knight? Do you know? Uh, they used Toronto and Chicago. Yeah. Um, Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that was, that was also kind of like, it was supposed to be a hybrid, obviously of, um, you know, it's, it's supposed to look like metropolitan basically. Right. 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 But uh, I think watching this movie to my eye, like there's never a moment that you're like, this isn't in the Bay area, which I think is, yeah. Um, kind of difficult to do, especially being like, especially because I've been to LA and I know when LA is trying to be hidden in a movie, right? Where <laughs> sure, they're like, this sure. is, this is not Los Angeles. And you're like, that's, that's definitely just outside of Los Angeles. Like I know, right, I, right, I right, feel right. like I've yeah, been exactly. there before, you know? Um, so I think that was really impressive that it kind of felt accurate to the environment. Uh, even if it wasn't fully shot there, but still, it sounds like a lot was. Um, and yeah, I just, I just think, I think, I think they nailed it. Right. Um, it's super impressive. Yeah. So let's talk about like how I feel about this movie because it's we've been watching Fincher films and uh, we started with Seven, then Fight Club, then Panic Room, and now Zodiac, which is very. If you think about what Fincher's saying and what Fincher's doing with each one of those movies, uh, it does all sort of culminate into um, Zodiac as a film. I think I, if I watch this movie without knowing very much about Fincher or his past films, it would discredit a lot of the mastery in this movie. Um, because I would be like, I don't really follow. Um, I'm finding myself kind of struggling with this movie because it reminds me of when I watched the Godfather and I, I saw it and I was like, I understand it, but I do not feel it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think my response to this, especially after watching Seven, uh, which is to me just a, an emotional roller coaster, right? And then sure. follow that up with Fight Club, which was almost too edgy emotional for me, where I was like, okay, I feel almost a little distanced by how kind of like how this movie is saying a lot and feeling a lot. It's very nineties. Right. Uh, and then to watch panic room where it's sort of all removed from that. I was, I was, I was surprised on how surgical 
the display of information was in this movie, how it was mm. like, we need to cover everything that happened around this event. Right. Um, and, and we're going to do it to the best of our ability to make it dramatized, but we're not going to miss a detail. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was kind of shocked by that because I was like, I am starting to get some of that emotion, uh, that I was feeling in seven and the precision that I witnessed in, in panic room and also kind of a deeper commentary that is overblown in fight club in my, in my opinion, you know, uh, I know some people probably disagree with that, but you know what I'm saying? Like stylistically, it's like, what if yes, yeah. we blew up all of downtown with bombs, you know, like, <laughs> like it's very like, it's like supposed to be that, that kind of energy. Right. I'm not, yes. I'm not knocking it for being that. Um, so I understood it, but I didn't necessarily have the soaring feelings or emotions that I had watching seven, which, you know, you and I both agree, Cameron, like it feels like a flawless movie. Um, it's just yes. incredible. I watched it a second time within the last, <laughs> uh, three weeks just because I was so enamored with it. Yeah. Um, and this movie is very different from that, but what I found is I really, um, talking about like memories of murder and stuff like these traumatic events, historical events that happen in a population, how quickly they're forgotten and sort of the deeper context around it made me emotionally brew on this movie. Even though when the credits rolled, I was like, okay, right. Mm -hmm. Like when the credits roll, you're kind of like, that's a lot of text on the screen telling you what happens and the end. And it kind of has this sort of sterile, empty feeling. But what, what I began to reflect on after the credits rolled were the small lines about four years later, you know, the cartoonist is still kind of obsessed with this crime thing. And everyone else around him is like, dude, like this is nothing compared to the state of the world, you know? And what kind of what a deep, meaning that has and and also like how it begins to then make you think even more about like is it wrong uh for the for i forget the jake gyllenhaal's character the cartoon guy what's his name great uh great grayson robert graysmith grace yeah, graysmith um like is it there's almost kind of like this moral tension with graysmith where you're like yeah like we d we don't want to forget but also he's kind of being a crazy, not a crazy person, but like well, he's ruining his life in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's, he's basically well, abandoned his family. Right. And he, yeah, he's pursuing this drive to uncover something that, um, he thinks cannot be forgotten. Right. And so there's, there's just a lot to chew on with the design around that character. It, well, um, yeah, yeah, and um, not just him in in that way. It also is sort of reverberating in um, you know the lives of Robert Downey Jr.'s character um, and um, Mark Ruffalo's character um, Tashi. You know, it they they sort of the the three of them all sort of have this um, nagging feeling of being um, completely you know, outwitted in, in a certain sense, mm. um, by someone who 
you know, really sh- shouldn't have. Um, but they feel this, this sort of, you know, this longing and this desire to, uh, to, to, to finish it. But Graysmith is the one who really has the most of that. Um, and, and he's, you know, it, it turns into obsession for him where the other two, you know, kind of, kind of reverberates through their lives, but not in the same, um, sort of hyper-focused way that it does with, with Graysmith. Um, yeah, so I found my reflection on the movie to be more emotional versus when the credits rolled, I was kind of like, I don't know what to feel. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's not that I... I feel like I'm still kind of grasping the movie because a lot happens and you can kind of take it as, you know... These these are the events of things that happened in an order, and this is based on a true story. But there's more to this movie that kind of haunts you uh, in mm-hmm. a way that you can't describe. And so often you watch movies based on a true story. At least before I started doing this podcast, I've seen a lot of movies like that that just made me feel nothing inside, <laughs> where I'm like, I just, that was a story, and I'm sure it was important. Um, but for some reason it didn't like based on a true story used to be like a marketing point that made me want to fall asleep. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, I think there's also something disappointing in the ending of this movie that makes it even more of a true story. You know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. Where like it's conclusion is, uh, text, on a page, um, something that you'll never get to see a final confrontation or a dramatized, uh, exciting moment. And to then compare that to Fincher's earlier, I guess, murder mystery film where he's young and fueled by (laughs) excitement and entertainment and doing this. Um, now he's left with the case still, unsolved and unresolved and he's making a movie about how you were in the presence of something kind of traumatic and community-based and how there is no conclusion and everyone moved on but you're still kind of like haunted haunted, yeah haunted by that right yes yeah so yeah i i still am grappling with the complexity of this movie I think something about it still made me feel a little distant to it. Whereas memories of murder, I felt much more emotionally resonant with it. Mm-hmm. And maybe there was an aspect of absurdity or comedy that was looped into the, the buddy cop film where it kind of, I think memories of murder basically perfectly merges seven and Zodiac in a film that, you know, <laughs> honestly might be, better than both and i know that that might be that might be kind of strange to say but uh (laughs) it's it's it handles both of the movies feelings and subjects in like a perfect cocktail Mm -hmm. and um i watched that movie not knowing it was based on a true story at all 
you know? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and it's I, loosely, it's loosely based. I mean, it's not, it's not like this, you know, comparatively, this is very straightforward about he, his intention is trying to be accurate to the case, you know, and he's trying to be very, um, you know, pinpoint about sort of the things that are happening and like dissected in real life. Memories of murder. It's based on, um, you know, real things that that had happened, but they're very, um, they're you know, still artistically uh, different. He, you know, sure. he, he's not he's not trying to to recreate, you know, that scenario uh, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I think just as a like from a viewer's experience, or at least maybe my casual viewing experience, there is something about Memories of Murder that brought about an emotional engagement that Zodiac was missing, but Seven had. And a kind of reflective depth that Zodiac has that I don't think Seven holds, mm-hmm. not to its detriment, but just because it was, it's kind of its own, it has its own things to say, but it's it's kind of entertainment first, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Well, so, I would say, I would say it's interesting because as we've sort of moved along Fincher's, um, uh, Fincher's catalog, I do think he's sort of stripped away the the pure sort of raw emotions of his early um, days, of his early you know filmmaking career, and he's he's replaced it with sort of a precision and um, and this almost this like this like um, beating heart that that never never stops. It just just keeps going and sort of. You know, it's this, it's this forward momentum in you know in Panic Room and in in Zodiac that I think like it 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 almost doesn't let you even catch your breath in some ways. You know, you're you're sort of you're there's so much to to accomplish, um, and not to say that that's sort of negative. That's not a negative of either of those movies. But I think I think he's sort of favoring a less um over the top emotional style in favor of a more sort of precise um and almost economical style. And I think the the emotions are much more subtle in those two movies. Um and really he's sort of leaning on you to um tease out some of the um the the deeper things in uh, in those movies, if that makes sense. I think the best way I can describe the sort of way that I'm feeling about the, the difference between his nineties movies and the movies we've seen, uh, in the two thousands is it reminds me of, um, it kind of reminds me of like legendary artists, like music artists versus kind of like, artists that are awesome but they're they're kind of one note right um and i okay maybe that that's discrediting it but if you think of a band like rage against the machine in their first album right like that is kind of an insanely epic interpretation of you know political fueled rage that you're just like i'm overwhelmed and this is kind of awesome I don't even know where I stand on it, but I'm just like, I'm feeling the angst and like the, the just, I'm just, I'm moved by this. Right. 
and I know a lot of people would say like, that's all music needs to be right. That's exactly what like makes great music. And I kind of agree with them and I'm drawn to that where I'm like, there's a, there's something about it that I'm just like, man, this hits. Right. And then you look at another band, like, um, I would say a good example would be Radiohead where you listen to a song the first time and you're like, I'm not I, I, like, like you're like, okay, I, I heard it. I chewed on it, but then you return to the song and you return to the song and you're somehow still drawn into a mystery that you haven't been able to figure out. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's something deeper there that was also, I think, you know, precisely put together. Um, if you think about a song like Karma Police um, off OK Computer by Radiohead, there's something about that song that has a, and, and if you're talking about two songs that, you know, you could you could kind of, you could kind of say that they are you they could both be interpreted as political things. So you compare um a Rage Against the Machine song like Killing in the Name of, which let's just, you know, link that to seven, versus Karma Police, which would be linked to the complexity of Zodiac. If you don't know these songs, you just think I'm insane, right? You have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. So I apologize. But there's something about Karma Police when you listen to it every time. There's something new that pops out to you about it. And it mm-hmm. really has nothing to do with the actual song, and yet somehow it does. You know what I mean? And I think Zodiac sure. has an energy about it where it's like you watch it and you're watching a murder mo- movie, but what you walk away thinking about isn't like, isn't even fully fixated on the historical murder event. Instead, you're yeah. reflecting on experiences of the people around this thing and how it kind of relates to your experience responding to traumatic or historical things that you've witnessed, you know, um, to even consider, right. Like how fight club was before nine 11. And, you know, of course the holiday just passed. Right. Um, like I was nine 11 was like on my mind and to watch this movie, it's, I don't know, like there were things to kind of pull out of my personal thought uh, in interpreting this film. And it's weird because I'm not as excited to watch Zodiac as I was with Seven. I watched Seven twice already, you know? But you can't, it doesn't matter if you like it, you can't deny the fact that it's doing something to you, you know? Yeah, yeah, it has a way of sort of creeping into your brain, not even in the sort of old boy sense where it's like right. old old boy, it, it does that um, just over time and it sort of beats certain images into your brain. Zodiac, I, I think it I think it does. You know, there there are lots of images from this movie that that are stuck in my mind, but not in the same way that that old boy does that. I think the the feelings and the atmosphere and the sort of attitude of of Fincher and and even just how good he writes a scene of pure exposition you know that, that's so it's so impressed me this time watching it how 
like I would say like 80% of this movie is exposition, <laughs> like literally. Mm. It's all sort of, you know, getting new information and explaining things and sort of really going into the details of of certain certain elements um and then there there are those obviously there you know those flashpoint moments where which i you know i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit but but there's there's some some much tenser scenes that he does excellently um but most of the movie is really explanatory and fincher i don't know how he does this but he is a master of making things um uh, drip feeding you information to where you want more and and you're so excited to get more information when in any other movie it would be like a slog to get this much you know exposition and and mm. and sort of this much explaining over and over again and I, I I don't know I don't know what it is about Fincher it could be the way that he sort of um you know the the way that he constructs scenes in sort of this context of of having you sort of live and breathe in these characters and then pitting them together and th- there's just something very dramatic about um about how he he's able to use these characters to sort of um bend and shake and sort of you know exist in the world um at odds with each other or in cooperation with each other. Um, and every time you see, you know, you see a new sort of pairing or a new matchup, it feels fun and interesting. And then every time that there's a new lead or a new sort of break in the case, it feels, it feels just as, um, engaging as, Mm. you know, something that, that, is you know rapidly happening or like like a a thrilling scene or something like that i don't i don't know what it is but um he just has he he has a a beautiful way of um giving you information it's so weird like you would think that would be really boring (laughs) like lots of dialogue and uh lots of sort of like technical information about things um but it's not. It's it's extremely engaging. Yeah, I did. I did find that following the case and all its strange little details and the back and forth on certain aspects to be a bit of a exercise in my mind. I was kind of like, okay, wait, who are they talking about? They keep talking about like going back and forth to different people that confirm handwriting matches and things like that, and. I don't know. I I did feel like it was a little bit like there were moments where I was very engaged with the clues and other moments where I was sort of that that's not the forefront of the focus. Um there's I think I don't know. I think it it kind of does uh, now looking back it does something really special and unique where there are these sporadic moments of breaks in the case or potential leads. And then it's dealing with the press and then it's dealing with like, like it, it, it feels, um, more realistic because of it. Cause it's not this constant stream of the next clue and the next clue. They're really like hanging out to dry and they have no idea really what's, what's next. They don't have much to go off of. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, like the whole, the drip, 
feed of information isn't actually what hooked me as much as some of the other things I was talking about um, with kind of the construction of, of characters and their, their drive and it, whether or not they're like, I, I guess kind of their, their, I don't, I don't know what, how to describe it, but um, sort of how the characters are somehow um, relatable, even though you're not in an extreme scenario like that. And you're not, um, you're not really making a intense decision decisions like they are yeah well that's another thing that the movie is kind of one of the sort of um minor themes of the movie is sort of the celebritization of certain people um you know and and how that changes their own attitude towards um Mm. you know towards their their work and towards their um you know existence within the world and like um, like that's a major theme with detective Tashi, uh, where he's, he's someone who is, you know, feels very real in the movie and feels very, uh, you know, honest. And every time you see him, it's like, he's waking up in the middle of the night, you know, he's next to his wife, he's getting a phone call at like 4am and stuff, you know? And it's like, oh, you know, he's, he feels like a real person. But in the movie and in real life, in a lot of ways, he has this sort of um, all star aura around him and everybody kind of in the subtly in the background is like, oh, yeah, wow, that's the guy who they base bullet off of, you know, and like, oh, Mm. you know, there's there's like there's like little hints of of, you know, he feels um, he's just a regular guy in this movie. He really is. He's just a detective. He makes mistakes. He does things wrong. Um, but, uh, the movie, you know, gives him sort of everybody around him has this, this sense that he's like a legendary figure almost. Um, but he's, he's not. And it's, it's so, it's so subtly done, um, in like a very, um, mature Fincher way, I guess it it really feels, um, I don't know. It, it feels, uh, it feels very mature. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah, I'm. I think just in sitting down and reviewing this film, um, like at face value, sometimes you want your like, like at face value, and I'm just relating it back to to music. Sometimes you want that song that just hits right away, even if it is like two note, not very deep. Um, there's some complexity, but it doesn't go much further than that. But the songs you return to are the ones that you you haven't quite figured out, but you're somehow drawn in by it. And I had some pretty high expectations going into this movie. I think that definitely um, might have like hurt my viewing experience. What I've been surprised surprised about is how I've sat and thought about this movie um, a lot and. I was like, I don't know why at the end I felt so bored and empty, but as I moved further away from the movie, I wanted, like, I there's still something I was searching for in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time when I'm bored and empty at the end of a movie, I'm like, well, that was dumb and I'm moving away. I'm moving on from that. You know, like, I, I'm like, it's like I, I saw it and that was kind of a weird way to end. And so, well, okay, I'm walking away, you know, 
it's it's rare for me to to kind of sway after like kind of, like after some meditation on the movie. Usually if I walk away from a movie and I'm like that was kind of boring or dry, I can come up with good reasons on why that is true. With this film, I found myself coming up with uh ideas that had me thinking critically, you know? Um, mm-hmm. just reflecting personally. And uh I didn't expect to think like that after a movie that ended with text, you know? Uh <laughs> the movie ends with text. I'm like, okay, I'm just reading information. Literally, Jules and I had to pause the movie when we were watching it together. She was like, wait, what does it say? And we're like trying to read the screen. We're like, okay, what's going on? Uh, what happened at the end? Well, okay, but to be fair, and I, I think we should just um, get into full spoilers at this point because, um, to be honest, the case is unsolved. There's there's not really a ton of spoilers to, to go through. Um, and the journey is exciting, you know, either way. Um, yeah. but, but the, 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 the epilogue of, you know, t- talking about the, the sort of, you know, DNA tests that were done and, you know, the other things like a lot of that is, is really sort of detailed and sort of tying up loose ends, but really this, the story element and the narrative arc does have a, a sort of beautiful and poetic um, ending in a lot of ways. And, 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 you know, you see, you see Graysmith and, and Tashi sort of battle it out. That's kind of the last sort of like informational scene. And, and, and I think Tashi asks like, why are you doing this? Like, what is it to you? And he says, I want to, I want to look him in the eye to see, to know, and know that it was him, you know? And he, he does that. Um, he, he goes to the, the store and, and it's so it's, that is such a beautiful scene. It's one of my, I, I never really, um, thought about it the first time that I watched it. I didn't really like, uh, it wasn't the one that, that like stuck in, in my head necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but watching it this time, that look is so haunting and, um, uh, th- there's just something so subtle about it in a way that like, uh, to me, this is when like that look is when you start to see Fincher um, really understand what he's doing. And, and I think this is when he becomes a master of what he does. Um, a master of the subtleties of, of emotion and the subtleties of, just a character recognizing um, that you know who he is, you know, and, and it, it's it's something so um, so simple, just a face, um, but he does it so effectively, um, and I, I don't know. To me, like it's it's one of my favorite scenes that he's ever done. Um, I think it 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 really is. Um, and then, but but what I was saying is. That really is the narrative end of the movie. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, because it's not a, because it's unsolved, because there is no solution really, um, you know, Fincher does have to pick a, a who he, he thinks he did it, 
you know, who he thinks did it. Right. 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 Um, and, and that's the perspective of the book. Um, the, you know, the character who Fincher thinks, or that the movie sort of zeroes in on is the character that's pinned in the book. Um, and so, you know, in that way, um, there is this sort of sense of finality, but I, but I do think the, the ending is really powerful and very meaningful. Um, even though there is sort of this, um, you know, there, there's a, a scene more where they're sort of tying up loose ends and, and little, little details that he wants to get in there. But really the narrative, um, ends when, when he walks out of that, uh, that hardware store. Yeah, I, I I remember enjoying this scene, but I don't know if I really appreciated all of its all of its like execution. I was just like, oh, you know, just he saw him. Good job, you know, and uh, and kind of the conclusion with the lawyer at the end identifying, you know, the um, like who who could be the suspect in that. Obviously, not panning through. Because of um, is Arthur's death, is that his name? Mm-hmm. His first name's Arthur, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I found. Yeah, yeah. The the ending. The, the looking scene and stuff. I'd have to see it again for it to like emotionally connect with me. Um. There are this movie does have a lot of great gut drop emotions or like exciting moments yeah. that are strangely less um, memorable because of what you were saying earlier about how you wanted to get information. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the scenes that you remember are uh, two characters talking, you know? Um, yeah. And, and those are the, those are the scenes that stick with you compared to the murder scenes, which almost seem, um, at least in my view, the very few of the murder scenes stuck out um, compared to like kind of dialogues or question. Like nothing beats that that scene where they're questioning uh, um, oh, Arthur amazing. with the watch and stuff. Like that that is better than any murder scene in the movie. Or the moment where um, Jake Gyllenhaal's talking about talking about the guy who does like the different projection reels uh, and that whole scene in the basement and stuff. Again, not scenes um, like like those are the those are the haunting moments that are like you're you want to know more information, right? Uh, it's just yeah, though the, those scenes are fantastic. So I have um, a um, this is Juzo's story. So hopefully I don't botch this. Honestly, okay. um, so the projectionist uh, guy, obviously the he. Um, uh, he, he, you know, he works at the Castro theater. That's sort of the big sort of set piece of his. Um, and, uh, <laughs> back in the day, apparently, um, he was, um, friends with Juzo's dad, uh, for oh. some time. 
that guy, that actual guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, they just found it hilarious that he was like, you know, used as as kind of a, you know, a red herring in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, and, uh, <laughs> Jesus' dad is like, he's like the nicest guy ever, you know. But, <laughs> you know, it's just. He this- does, yeah, he, he is a red herring, but he's also still kind of a nice dude, like at the yeah. end. Right? Yeah. Like you're I mean- kind of like, OK, like that was creepy, but also like the way he's acted in the scene is still kind of like, what is this guy doing in my house? You know? Um, so yeah, no, no, no. But that is, that is pretty funny. Um, yeah, it just, uh, the connection with the Chronicle and stuff. I know Juzo, um, his mentor works for the Chronicle, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool to like kind of see how, um, I don't know, like to see film in the Bay area. Like there is, there are, um, some incredible, connections to Hollywood and artistic film, uh, in, in the Bay area. And I wish that it got more credit, uh, for that because Pixar is, you know, in, um, Oakland, right. And Lucasfilm or, or Berkeley Alameda? or something. No, 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 no. I think it's in Berkeley. I'll double check Pixar? on my maps right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, I th- I'm pretty sure. Or is it, well, I don't know. Yeah. Lucasfilm is, is in the city. Um. Uh, okay. Where's Pixar located? I think it might be Alameda. It says uh, Emeryville, but I don't know. Oh yeah. Okay. That's kind of that's sort of in between. It's not like it's it's kind of in Oakland, sort of. I just know it's on that side of like the bay. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you see it. Okay. Wait. I'm gonna look at it on the map. But you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. That's close enough, right? Um, it's above Oakland, okay? Or you know, Lucas. I think LucasArts is uh, somewhere in Sonoma, right? Um, there, I don't know. They, I Napa, think they probably have Sonoma. a bunch of a bunch of different uh, places. But their HQ is in San Francisco. I think it's in the Presidio. There is. There are. There are some um, great movie connections in in the bay yeah well and, and and classically you know speaking of i mean bullet and dirty harry um both mm. in san francisco um and then you know we we sort of briefly talked about it but uh fincher you know has another f- film that is very sf loving which is the game Ooh. um and you know it's a it's a wonderful um sort of tribute to uh, to the city in that way. And to be fair, um, the social network, which we're going to watch next week. Yeah. That's what um, I, I thought you were talking about the social network and then you said the game and I was like, Oh yeah. Well the game, <laughs> the game is, is entirely set in, in SF. It's like, it's pretty much, uh, you know, it's like, it's very SF heavy. If you could, you know, it's like lots of night shots of, of San Francisco, but I, I would say Zodiac kind of is the love letter to San Francisco, um, in Fincher's catalog. Um, it really is. I mean, with the, the sort of, uh, the time-lapse stuff where they're building the Transamerica pyramid and, uh, you know, the, the fireworks over the bay as it, as it opens and stuff, you know, it's just like, it's so, it's so great. It, it feels um, I don't know. Every time I, I, every time I watch the movie, I'm like, man, this is like, this is a, like 
a Bay Area love letter, you know? Yeah, no, t- definitely, definitely. And it's cool that he uh, he grew up in Marin County. That's such a beautiful area, too. Oh, it's so, so nice, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got we to gotta see some of that Bay Area love, man. That's all. That's all. That's all I gotta say. Because it's well, it's good. Yeah, it's place. good when you get to see it in a in a movie. You know, you're like, wow, this is like close to home. You know, they always do the weird thing. Have you ever seen? Oh, okay. I I don't know why I just asked you. That. <laughs> I was gonna what? say, um, have you ever seen the movie What's Up Doc by Peter Bogdanovich? But obviously, you've never seen that movie. No. no. Um, well, What's Up Doc is another one of these like. Um, classic san francisco movies uh but it's it i wouldn't say it's like well known for (laughs) for being like a san francisco movie but it totally Mm. is it's it's weird you know it almost like obnoxiously um san francisco there's like a chase scene down down like (laughs) like you know classic san francisco locations and stuff it's just it's it's kind of funny so yeah i've always wanted to see like um some you, you know how like LA kind of has the outskirts of LA movies. I mean, mm-hmm. like Nope is kind of on the on the outskirts of LA, and we watch like Palm Springs is kind of attached but outside, right? I feel like there's an opportunity with San Francisco. I don't know, like I want to see like a coming of age movie and the sunset or something like that. You know, you could do something really cool with with that stuff. Well, there was a movie called last black man in San Francisco. Uh, that was kind of like that. It was like, um, it, it kind of centers around a house that's I think in, um, like Bay point or something. It's like very not, not like classic San Francisco, but it is, uh, it is, it's not like a great movie, but, um, it, it has that feeling for sure. Still, that's kind of cool. Anyways, I think we're kind of off topic, <laughs> but uh, well, I want to yeah, talk. The- I want to talk kind of deeper about the characters because I think the three that are um, we talked about Graysmith, so I think we can kind of mm-hmm, wrap that mm-hmm. up. Um, but I, I, I definitely wanted to mention um, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, Paul Avery, who you know is sort of a um, he's this sort of cascading. Uh, presence and and in some ways like this is more than iron man this is robert downey jr's return to to film um as kind of a um you know kind of a bumbling uh but very charismatic um and eventually very drunk uh uh you know reporter who this is before iron man 2007 yeah oh wow okay i didn't know that yeah so this this kind of i i wouldn't say this is his like returning role but in in a lot of ways it is i mean it's a big it's a big part in this movie um and you know he obviously had a rough uh time in the 90s um and sort of had his own his own struggles and then came back as sort of this tour de force that he is now. But this was right before Iron Man, you know, right before he became one of the most well-known actors on the planet. So um, I don't know. It feels to me like this is his his return, uh, actually, instead of Iron Man. But <laughs> who knows? Um, 
but but you know his character Paul Avery I think is is so um he's a lot of fun he's a very fun character and then he turns into a very very tragic character um and someone who you you really feel um you know he he's he's not necessarily destroyed by his involvement in the case but in some ways he is and in some ways he's he's very much um disturbed by the fact that um his uh he, you know the the killer is is onto him and you know it it is is trying to track him down or is threatening him you know and so he he sort of spirals he's already on a spiral downwards but um even more so after his his sort of um ultimate you know his collapse comes from from the threats against his life um and the, the stress around being being that um until he he really by the end, he turns into someone who's who's extremely bitter about um, about what happened to him, um, and I I just think he's he's such a well uh, well written character, and at the same time, you know, Robert Downey Jr. he's always charismatic in his roles, and he always is a lot of fun to watch on screen. But um, you know, he he gives a great performance as sort of this um, man who is kind of pushed to his limits by something he can't really control. Um, and also is very curious about, about how to solve this thing too. So, yeah, it's basically Iron Man's arc that happens in the MCU over 18 movies all done in one. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, in some ways. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. I, I don't know. That, obviously kind of joking with that, but um, I didn't know this was before Iron Man because he does have a little bit of, you can tell like he's not super comfortable in his own skin, but I think it kind of adds to the performance. Uh, yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, <laughs> and and yeah, he still has that that bubbling charisma that you know him for. Um, I found him to be still extremely enjoyable to watch, and the interaction between him and Jake Gyllenhaal on the boat is just. I, I don't know. It's just, um, it's something, right? Like it's, it's, it's sad and it's, you know, humorous and it, it, it has this, um, it has this like bittersweet note of, of him being like, just move on. Like you're not going to catch him. There's no way there's no, you know, you are, it's, it's gone. Like that, the time has passed. Like live in the present, okay? <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, and then, but like, how, like, how complex is that when he says it? Because he is the one that isn't past it, you know? Right. Yeah. Like he's genuinely destroyed by the situation, and so it's almost his the best blessing he can do is be cruel and harsh to try to get him away from it mm-hmm. because it's ruined him. Do you know what I mean? Like it right. kind of when you reflect on on that interaction and then also like yeah i think the bitterness i think that's perfect what you said like the bitterness that comes for his his soul like by the end 
it's just it's tragic and clearly frustrating for his character as well i think we i think i've witnessed people like that who have been through something um that has affected a lot of people and somehow they are still embarrassed about how much it is affecting them, mm-hmm. you know, and also equally frustrated and still bitter and still mad about it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and kind of just like, don't really want to think about it or talk about it anymore, you know, but it's all, but it's also the only th- like, it's, it's all that they're like surrounded by. And, and every time you see, it's like that friend, every time you see them, they have to bring up that emotional damage that they went through. You know, it's that one friend who's like, man, like, and it just, it, it, it like brings you back to that fallout that you witnessed or you were a part of, uh, or they just want to like spit the garbage again. And you're just like, dude, like, <laughs> you know, and, and those kind of people are always the kind of people that are like, uh, don't do, don't do what I do, you know? Um, yeah yeah and so i don't know i i found is like it's it's weird because you want more of him because of his charisma um and to see him end that way is very much um difficult to see and enjoy but also because you love is you love him on screen you're kind of trying to think about, well, why? Like, why is he in that state? You know? I thought he was the kind of reporter that was like, you know, F this, flip off work, and go on to bigger, better things. And instead, he's stuck kind of bumming and at the edge of his health. Um, yeah. And that's not a Hollywood ending to somebody no. <laughs> that's like, I'm done with this, you know? Um so yeah, and and yeah, let's talk. Let's talk. Are we going to talk about um, Mark Ruffalo's character a little bit? Because I think this is um, definitely one of the best roles I've seen him in. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, he. I I feel like <laughs> I feel like Mark Ruffalo is always like annoyed on screen. <laughs> you know, sure. And yeah. so I I feel like this is the best. Um, this is just the best like way to use that natural tendency of the deep sigh you know <laughs> with him with him as the hulk right it's very much like it's just oh this is all, isn't it funny how annoyed he is or isn't it funny how he's like on the verge of about to, to, to get angry and things like that but i don't know it's it's um it's done in a very realistic fashion and there's there is definitely still the um the mad heroism and respect around his character despite uh, his his irritation, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and I would say, um, you know, so so uh, Dave Tashi is kind of a classic um, guy, and especially in in sort of you know film circles, it's kind of a like pub trivia to know about like who. Oh, Dave Tashi, you know, he was you know one of the inspirations for for Dirty Harry and uh, and Bullet. You know, it's like. It's like, okay, you know, cool. But, um, but in some ways, like, um, I think, I think Ruffalo's portrayal of him is, um, 
is very down to earth. You know, he's someone who, who kind of is a, he's a working man, you know, he's kind of doing what he does and he, you know, he enjoys, uh, he enjoys his partner. He enjoys the work that he does, but at the same time, you know, he, he doesn't feel particularly attached to this, um, you know, it, in, in the beginning, you know, he's definitely attached to the case and, and there's a, there's lots of scenes of, of him, uh, you, you know, stressing about the bomb threats and everything else. Um, but sort of towards the later part of the, um, of of the movie, I mean, almost after they uh, they interrogate, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, after they interrogate um, Arthur, you know, he his his character sort of follows the same sort of haplessness about the case that um, that that Paul Avery does, where he's like, you know, it's a long time ago. It was a case that was unsolved. We were working on it, but, you know, he says, like, do you know how many murders happen uh, every year in San Francisco? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like, as much as this is sort of a driving motivator for him, and there's even, you know, even sort of right before that, he's he's kind of pondering at the at one of the sites of, of the murder of the taxi cab murder and you know he's like he's still thinking about it and still still ruminating about it um and obviously still sort of disturbed and affected by it um but at the same time he's like i can't spend all of my days worrying about it you know it's just not it's not economical i have to i have to continue working on on my my real job you know and so that's when it sort of shifts to him starting to to slowly help um robert graysmith sort of you know put these things together and by the end he really is back in it again you know and he yeah he, it, it's like he's he's come back to that sense of of urgency that graysmith does um, but throughout the, the, the sort of middle portion of the movie, he's, he's very, he's not just ambivalent to, towards it. You know, he's like, he walks out of the screening of, of, um, I, whatever they're what they might be watching bullet or something. I, I don't remember, but you know, he, he walks out of that screening and he's like, oh, I just can't, I can't think about this anymore. You know? Yeah. It's, it's like fear of being hurt and like, he has to move on yeah. with his life, you know? Yeah, and it's like we we did everything we could. We exhausted all the possibilities. Um, you know, I know who I think did it, but there just wasn't enough evidence. And you know, that's that's that. It's it's nothing more than it just didn't work out. You know, and so there's something there's something equally tragic about that character, although he has I would say more of a redemptive um, arc than uh, than than Paul Avery does. And and sort of both driven by Graysmith, who's this you know maniacal uh, obsessed person, <laughs> you know about this. Um, but I, I I don't know. I just love the three of them because they they all are sort of these real human, very flawed characters who um, who just have such a a presence on screen. Um, that I think is, is, I don't know, ultimately it's so, it feels so human. Um, you know, they feel like real people. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I I think what what I love in this review that we're getting at is it's kind of like Jake Gyllenhaal's character has that undying hopefulness um, that he just, but it becomes a problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there is kind of the utter defeat and bitterness with Robert Downey Jr.'s character. And that becomes a problem. Right. Uh, kind of the most compliment, complimentary like side of, uh, Mark Ruffalo's character is he's like, well, he, he's sort of like, he's, it's kind of like the guy that honestly is making the best choice out of all of them, <laughs> you know, where he's like, I got to move on. I'm hurt. I can't do this. I, I still want to, but you know, it's, it's going to cost me like, he's the only one at the end with, <laughs> that still seems to be around his wife, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Uh, his life completely has not fallen off the rails, even though, I mean, like that, that's the kind of, that's the kind of dude that's like, you could tell like he's a strong man, hard, like a hardworking, like blue collar guy that, you know, it might, like he, he didn't let his emotions dictate his life, even though he's haunted by it, you know? Yeah. It's just that generation being tough as nails, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, it's pretty, um, it makes him sort of undeniably like admirable despite being grounded and realistic. He doesn't have to be a superhero, right? you know? Um, he kind of shines above and you kind of like his like, like no BS attitude towards the end of the movie. Um, with uh Jake Gyllenhaal's character where he's just like I don't care I have 5 minutes you know like <laughs> he's very he's very much like if you're serious about this you are going to go the extra mile you know because I don't know like it's you really start to love their interaction too whereas the 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 first half of the movie you're kind of drawn into um honestly like I think Robert Downey Jr kind of steals the show and you want to see him interact with everyone um so yeah, I mean, I it's hard because I think like I I want to recommend this movie, right? Um, even though my first viewing, I didn't absolutely love it. It's a movie I'm coming around to, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think if you listen to this review, I still think you're going to be really surprised. Even the opening moments you know, are not spoiled in, in this, in this review. Right. I think it'll, it'll only amplify your appreciation for the movie. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I do recommend it, Cameron. What what do you think? Yeah, no, I also recommend it. And I would say, um, it is, it's a very long movie. Um, mm, to be fair, yeah. it, it's like, you know, two hours and 40 minutes, but in a lot of ways, um, it justifies its length by being so, um, in some ways, just so entertaining, scene to scene, covering so much ground, and then fi- sort of being able to um, to win you over at so many points. We we didn't even mention like this movie really is paced perfectly for an almost three hour movie. It's it's kind of insane. Like um, we so me and Kiana watch ended up watching it, and she's seen it before, and she was like, um, you know, I might I might go to bed or whatever. Um, if I get tired, um, but she ended up, you know, watching the whole movie just because it's so, 
it keeps I, I feel like it to me it keeps you locked in um at every at every turning point and it's not as you said it's not just sort of the the mystery element or the information gathering element um in so many scenes it's the it's the characters who really um steal the show so yeah, I, I will say Juliana watched it with me. She said she had seen it before, but she became very disengaged pretty quickly. Um, which, you know, I I think that might have made it harder for me to follow mystery parts because she'd be always be like, so wait, what's going on right now? And I'm like, okay, wait. <laughs> so they're going to the guy to de- check the handwriting. She's like, didn't they already do that? I was like, yeah, but it's a different guy. Well, which guy? They don't know which guy. They've just been saying names. Oh, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. So I don't know. I I do think be active and ready with this movie. Yeah, uh, it's down. a lot of information. Sit down. Yeah, sit down. Um, don't be like. I don't think it's a, su- a movie you can sit through super tired. No, um, and and I would say um, it's a movie that also benefits from multiple viewings. Just in that. Sure. Um, it is a lot of information and it's also it's also fun to watch the second time, you know, as you sort of um, get more detailed into these characters and sort of understanding how they're how they're working and sort of the tensions between, you know, they're they're like very small sort of subtle ways where the departments don't really want to work with each other. And there's like there's tension in that and there's like certain, you know, just just there's like these little moments that you kind of you miss when you're trying to really follow the big picture um where you know later on you know or if you rewatch it it, it feel it sort of comes into a clearer picture um so i yeah i would recommend um this is a kind of a movie that i i wouldn't say almost requires a a second viewing but it definitely benefits from a second viewing for sure I do want to apologize, Cameron, at the end, dude. Like, there's some either, like, police helicopter or, like, some crop duster that's doing loops around my house or something. Oh, really? Like, I like can't hear so, it. But... It's so annoying. Like, it sounds like, you know, the Germans are about to drop bombs on London or something. I'm like, what is happening <laughs> out there? So, I, I mean, you know, I tried to shut this window halfway through that, but I just... Sorry if you hear a bunch of random noises. I I can't also, hear anything, but um, I can't drink water without like ice too, and it's just it irritates me every time. I'm like clink clink clink. I'm like oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm I'm just mad for our audience, you know? Yeah, um, I get it. So well, all right, Cam- all right, Cameron. Well, we're we're watching uh, the Social Network this week, and so we'll have that review out on Tuesday for you guys. Um, Thank you for listening. We appreciate the support. We appreciate you getting to the end. And Isaac, you haven't seen Zo- what? If I wasn't, I, I, if I'm not the Zodiac killer, but oh, if I was, oh. I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's it's weird with the with the Zodiac killer because like I don't know very much about it. I I feel like there's a whole nother conversation to be had about like kind of the cult following behind that person's impact. And if it was even just one person, you know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay. Also, and, there's another crazy element It's totally off topic, but there's a crazy okay. element to this story where, um, there's this guy, he wrote a book about it too. He, he accuses his own dad 
of being the Zodiac killer. He wrote, he wrote this book and he was like, yeah, I think my dad is actually the, the Zodiac killer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it, it's like the most insane thing. I want to see a movie about that. <laughs> that would be, that would be pretty funny, especially if it was like a, uh, a comedy. Yeah. With the dad at home. Yeah. Like, Stop <laughs> accusing me of being a mass killer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I don't want to do laundry. Never again. Never again am I going to do it, or I'm going to write this book. He's like, son, you're not even good at writing. No one's going to publish that. So, <laughs> Just yeah. a dad's disapproval resulting in him being tarnished <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Man. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we post every Tuesday. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We will see you next week. Cinema Spectator is an ECFS Productions podcast that is fully funded on Patreon.com. Shout out to our producers, Darren O'Neill, for supporting the show and to the rest of you that support us at Patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. If you want to learn more about the benefits you can get, check out our Patreon. The show cannot happen without you great listeners, so we thank you for all your kindness and support.